Hello, and welcome to the Science for Policy podcast. My name's Toby, and today I'm joined by Professor Michelle Knott and Tommy Sandewski. Michelle Knott is Professor of Comparative Politics and European Integration at the Technical University Darmstadt. Her areas of research include energy transformation, critical infrastructures and EU governance. She regularly advises policymakers on the EU level and also at national and regional levels in Germany. And Tomé Sandeski works at the Unit for Policy Engagement at Goethe University Frankfurt. He coordinates the science policy dialogue projects of the Rhein-Main University. So, Michelle and Tommy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having us. Hello. Okay, so let's get straight into it. Our topic today is a fellowship program, um, which has been running for quite a few years now, bringing together policymakers and researchers in Germany. And it's organised by... Tommy here, and Michelle is one of the experts who's taken part. So perhaps I could start by asking you, Tommy, to tell us a bit about the fellowship program. How did it come about? Who created it? Well, the MacArthur Science Policy Fellowship Program is a program which is jointly run by the Free Rhine Main Universities, Darmstadt, Frankfurt, and Mainz. And uh, the idea behind this was to establish a, a structure that would bring um, policymakers and our researchers uh, together in a systematic way. There are numerous researchers at our universities who are uh, members of uh, advisory boards or who are uh, conducting policy analysis and writing policy papers or evaluations on a regular basis. But we, the, the Rhein-Main universities, wanted to establish a program that would aim at uh, bringing also those researchers and policymakers together who uh, had not been in touch uh, so far via mechanisms like advisory boards or commissioned research. So this was the basic idea behind the program. Okay, how long has it been running? Since 2016, so more than, than seven years. Okay, and you said it allows policymakers and, and researchers to meet in a structured way, but my understanding is that it's a fairly informal style of meeting, right? Yes, yes. Uh, I mean, the, the policymakers uh, have to apply to our program and they have to submit um, topics or list of topics of interest or questions uh, they're interested in. And once we accept them in our fellowship program, we compile a list of researchers who have expertise at our universities and then we organize face-to-face -face meetings, which do indeed uh, happen in a very informal way. Yeah. Right. And Michelle, you have taken part in this. What was it like? Oh, I mean, these conversations are truly exceptional because you meet people in that informal way, what Tom just said, and you just can talk about everything which is in your issue area and which is in the issue area of the person, the fellow coming in. And that's, you don't have that in any other form. Yeah, it's certainly a bit different from what we talk about a lot on this podcast, which is kind of structured, uh, formalized science advice systems. Who were these people you were talking to? What kinds of policymakers? Yeah, I was talking with over 20 fellows yet, and they were coming from local institutions, from regional federal ministries, including ministries of economics, finance, science, development. Uh, they were also coming from the EU, from the director general, from energy and from research, but also just some representatives from NGOs or from the media. And um, as Tom said, we are matching or they are matching uh, people. So I talked to them in my own um, research areas. We were talking about sustainable energy politics, about climate change, environmental politics, the future of the EU, but also about critical infrastructure and crisis management. 
Did you know going into each meeting what they wanted to talk about? Or were you kind of freestyling? I mean, I also got a little uh, briefing what they want to talk about. But actually, you have to think, um, so we meet, we don't know each other. And each of us is first telling, uh, well, what is he doing or she doing and what I'm doing? And then you find your way to talk in uh, the issues which you find interesting at that moment. Yeah, wow. So it's, it is really organic. But it sounds like the the preparation is not so organic, right? Who chooses whom? Do policymakers say, I'm interested in this topic, so please send me this expert? Or is it more for the experts to say, I think I've got something to say to this kind of policymaker? Well, it is structured. Uh, let's say a policymaker is interested in the issue of how can energy consu consumption be reduced. In, in such a case, we compile a list of, of experts, including experts from architecture, engineering, but also political science, uh, economics, uh, and other disciplines. And uh, the policymaker uh, will take a look, and uh, he or she will then um, tell us about their preferences. And so a policymaker might be interested in the effectiveness of uh, energy taxes. So uh, the policymaker would like to talk to economists, but uh, it might also be the case that the policymaker wants to know about the effectiveness of um, uh, policies in certain areas. So political scientists like Michelle would be uh, the, the right people to talk to. But you also ask us if it's okay. <laughs> of course, yeah. <laughs> yes, we also send uh, the, the list of our fellows and, and the topics of interest to the researchers. And of course, they, they can also uh, choose the, the policymakers they would like to meet. Yeah, the way you describe it makes it sound like there's quite a lot of demand on both sides, actually. Yes, yes. I mean, um, we have accepted uh, almost 200 policymakers into our program and uh, they have conducted uh, almost 2,500 face-to-face uh, -face meetings or virtual meetings with uh, more than uh, 700 researchers. So there's uh, quite a demand on both sides. Okay. And is there scope to do more or are you keeping a lid on the numbers? Actually, um, we are a bit limited when it comes to the number of policymakers uh, we, we can accept into our program. And the limiting factor is um, the fact that the policymakers visit us twice per year and they visit us as a group. So uh, during each visit, we organize uh, between 150 and, and 250 meetings, which is quite a lot. So uh, in terms of resources, uh, we can usually not accept more than, than uh, uh, 25 or 30 policymakers. Oh, I see. So I hadn't quite imagined it that way. So essentially a delegation of these 25 or 30 policymakers turns up twice a year and you just kind of put them in little rooms and have them talk to academics. Yeah, we, we sent them to the offices of, of the academics. Yeah. This is you have to say, Tom, your team is doing an amazing job in really sending these people around because there are three huge campuses and these people have to be coordinated and it has to be coordinated with our timetable and we have to squeeze in here one for one hour, but then he has to go somewhere else. So this is really a logistically a great job you're doing. Yes, and, and that's actually the biggest challenge. So we, we have to sure to make that that the policymakers are going uh, to reach uh, the offices of the, the uh, researchers uh, at the right time. Yeah, okay. So this is clearly a successful program, I mean, notwithstanding logistical challenges. And I can appreciate those challenges as someone who's got lost on more than my fair share of university campuses in my life. But so what you described so far sounds kind of well, I was going to say ad hoc, not on the organizational side, obviously. I mean, it seems very slick, but I mean, the way policymakers and researchers approach it as like a bonus opportunity to interact rather than anything more structured. Well, fair enough. But then I start to wonder, because this is run by three universities in a fairly constrained geographical area. So 
Darmstadt, Frankfurt and Mainz, northwest of Germany. And you said it's only 25 policymakers per year, but then over seven years, that still adds up to surely quite a high proportion of the available policymaker pool in the area, as it were. So I wonder whether you get any sense that this scheme is starting to establish itself as a recognised route of science for policy advice. You know, do policymakers start to recognise and depend on it in any more of a consistent way, like alongside the other routes they have to get science advice? Yes, um, it serves two points. Uh, first, yes, they can ask for policy advice directly. Uh, maybe they have a topic which they want especially to discuss with one of us. And then for sure we are doing that. Um, but it also it's an investment in the future for both sides because it established a network. And this makes it so special because uh, usually you you recommend to politicians on a specific topic at that point of time, and that's it. Um, but this is sometimes they don't want exactly a policy recommendation. They just want to get in touch with us. And as I said, I mean, they tell what they are doing. I tell what I'm doing. And then we start talking about special issues. And um, then you establish a contact, which maybe he's giving that contact to his colleague, or maybe we follow up at that meeting and I sent him something. Sometimes we invite these uh, people for our panels when we need of a politician or an admin person or whatever it is. Uh, so this is more than a policy advice in one point of time. Yes, and if so, the, the idea is also to actually uh, establish networks between researchers and policymakers, and, and the meetings are often the first step. And uh, each policymaker is, uh, meets about uh, 16 researchers during the fellowship. And so, if uh, the policymaker needs research or scientific advice in the future, he has a personal network of, of 16 researchers he or she can approach. And if the researchers uh, cannot help them, they have colleagues uh, who might uh, have the expertise needed. Mm -hmm. And do you track these follow-up conversations? Do you keep tabs on what's come out of these meetings and what is taken forward? Yes, we, 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 we try tracking them and we have a quite impressive list. Uh, but it often happens that uh, the policymakers and uh, or the researchers will forget informing uh, uh, us about uh, uh, follow-up activities, which is perfectly fine as long as they happen. But uh, we have quite uh, an impressive uh, track record of uh, researchers who have been invited to ministries or to the European Commission. But also uh, many uh, researchers invite uh, policymakers to uh, attend conferences or uh, to give uh, presentations or uh, similar activities. And it's hard to track because sometimes that happens two years after the person had met us. Yeah. yeah, well, it's the same story for trying to track the impact of anything like this. The longer the delay also, the less confident you can be in attributing the effect to the cause, of course. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So a few minutes ago, you hinted at the involvement of policymakers at a European level. So this isn't just German government. You draw from a wider pool. Yes, yes. And uh, we have um, policymakers from um, Directorates General of, of the European Commission. And uh, we have also quite a few policymakers from the OECD, but also international organizations like the World Bank uh, or the uh, OSCE. So it's actually a very diverse uh, program. Hmm, yeah, okay. And is it deliberately constrained just to the policy community? I mean, you basically have a model where people who need scientific expertise can meet with people who have scientific expertise. And that's not just policymakers who have that need. Um, I mean, we, we, we also accept policy professionals from non-governmental organizations and also journalists, but 80% uh, of our fellows are actually uh, policymakers. And due to our limited resources, we actually have to focus on, on policymakers. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. 
So maybe you've already covered some of this in what you've said, but um, it strikes me that, especially in Germany, policymakers often have very many different sources of scientific advice and different formalized ways to engage with the scientific community anyway. Um, but it sounds like what you've created is nonetheless still quite in demand. Why do you think that is? What do you offer that policymakers can't get through the other channels that they have? I, I mean, what, what we can add is, is, is an informal uh, setting. So uh, the policymakers are, are free to speak uh, about the issues they are facing. They uh, can ask all the questions they're interested in. Uh, we are not taking minutes. Uh, so this is uh, the, the, the biggest asset we, we, we are uh, bringing to the table. And uh, in addition, um, we bring also researchers and policymakers together who would have not met uh, otherwise. And uh, if you look at advisory boards or uh, other mechanisms, you, you will often certain uh, uh, path dependencies. So let's say uh, policymakers working in ministries of finance, uh, they are likely to talk to, to economists. And uh, But we also uh, arrange uh, meetings with uh, scientists from areas like um, communication studies or social sciences, political uh, sciences. So uh, the, the policymakers have a wide range of experts uh, to choose from. And I think, if I may add, I think they know that we don't have a special interest at that moment. We don't want to lobby anything. We don't have an interest to to sell our research. And that's very important for them because they just can ask us. And sometimes they even ask, well, the advisory board advised on this and this for that and that policy. What do you think about it? Was that a good advice? What would you have said? And it's this face-to-face -face informal atmosphere which let us talk openly without any interest on from my side to convince that person now that my view is better than the others. Yeah, it's very interesting you mentioned that, Michelle, because I was thinking a bit about this question of bias as well and, and the idea of the advisor and, or the researcher having something to sell or like a position to push. Because... You say they know, you say the policymaker knows that you don't have that kind of agenda and so they feel more comfortable. Okay, but how do they know? I mean, how is that ensured? Because I don't want to sound too much like a, I mean, this scheme is clearly working, right? So I'm not trying to pick holes in something that's working well. But you're describing a structure where there are these one-to-one -one meetings in private, I guess, or at least no notes kept, no agenda, other than this introductory kind of matchmaking process to make sure you have something to talk about. That informality might be a strength, but there are also reasons why more formal structured mechanisms have more formality and more structure. And those reasons are to do with things like avoiding bias and ensuring that the policymaker gets a well-rounded, balanced scientific view, you know, and a high quality one and so on. And also the democratic principles like openness and transparency, you know, the idea that voters have the right to know what advice their elected representatives have received. And it sounds like you get some strong advantages from sidestepping all that and doing it informally, but you also lose out on those safeguards. Is that something you've thought about at all? Not yet, uh, I, I would have to admit. And uh, because r rather than, than providing science advice, we, we actually uh, regard this program as, as uh, organizing informal chats and actually establishing uh, channels of, of uh, dialogue. Mm. So you characterize it as networking rather than science advice, first and foremost. Yes, and it's uh, not not only the the policymakers uh, who learn a great deal about uh, science, but also uh, the participating uh, researchers. Still, they learn more about uh, policy making and policy context. Right, the benefits to researchers. Michelle, do you want to say a bit about this? 
Yeah, for me, it's uh, always good that uh, I can learn something. It, the benefit is twofold. I mean, I can instantly learn from that opportunity uh, about my research. It's a fresh perspective. It's a person I usually don't talk to. Um, it's a chance to discuss our finding with an expert, like gaining insights from government officials on the core of your own research is very good. Um, you also can learn, as, as Tom already said, something about how systems are functioning. I mean, me as a political scientist, I don't ask so much how is policymaking done, because I at least think I know about, but I vividly recall a terrific chat with a media representative who shared valuable tips for me on how to break into the media scene to just make my research more visible. So I can always learn something. And in addition, it's what we just already said. It's an expanding network. It's about uh, forging connections with policymakers for future research endeavors. And, and of course, uh, there are publicly available information on, on policymaking. Um, researchers can, can uh, visit the websites of policymaking institutions or read uh, strategy papers or read uh, laws. But there is also this uh, informal knowledge that is available in, in, in capitals. And it, it makes sense to, to talk to, to policymakers in an informal way because they can often explain why laws work in a certain way or maybe why, why they're not going to work. So this is also very uh, valuable uh, knowledge they can provide. What are the big topics that you get asked to cover frequently? Or most These are often, topics perhaps? like uh, political reforms, um, political communication, um, also the impact of uh, digitalization and, and artificial intelligence on uh, economies and uh, societies and uh, also issues like uh, how to deal with climate change, um, the, the challenges posed by uh, ir irregular migration. So, so these are uh, very popular topics. And of course, uh, uh, everything related to, to the European Union is also a very uh, pop uh, popular topic. Yeah, interesting. In that list, there seemed quite a lot of uh, social science-y stuff, some kind of big systemic questions about how things are evolving, rather than individual technical questions about details. Yes, in, in, indeed, about 50% uh, of uh, researchers participating in our program are, are social scientists. And uh, researchers from uh, STEM, they account for about 20% uh, of the uh, participating scientists. And uh, the, the reason behind this is that many policymakers uh, want to learn more about the impact of uh, technical developments uh, in areas of digitalization or artificial intelligence and uh, how to make uh, policy decisions in areas like uh, renewable uh, energy or, or similar areas. So th this is why... Uh, Social scientists uh, play a very prominent role as, as well as uh, economists. But we had lately, uh, I think we had also people from engineering when we are talking about climate change or energy transformation. I just remember that we had talks also with my colleagues from engineering. Okay, engineering, yes, yeah, so very practical and applied. Are there questions that come up sometimes that you find more difficult to answer? Yes. Uh, I mean, actually, it's not such a, a question, answer, question, answer situation. We talked a lot about it, that it's more a dialogue. But anyway, uh, it's paradox. But often the most basic and broad questions prove to be the most challenging for us because we, we can explain very good our detailed research. But then they ask questions like, How to stop climate change? Uh, what's the future of the European Union? Uh, you know, these are perfect examples where you think, okay, do we have now an, 
a day time or what I'm going to say now. So you really have to think, okay, where, where do I start and where do I stop? Uh, uh, or how can energy consumption be reduced? I mean, all these broad questions and that easy looking question sometimes are the most difficult ones. Um, and many policy fellows ask for recommendation, like the future development of something, you know, where is the EU going to evolve over the next 20 years or something like that. And I mean, we are not omniscient, so both sides have to find their way in the conversation. And I have to express, OK, I cannot give you a complete answer, but this is where I'm working on. And there I can give you some solutions for the future or something like that. Yes. And if I may add... Um it's interesting to see that uh, policymakers often deal with uh, issues which are uh, cross-disciplinary in nature, and uh, it's sometimes a challenge uh, for them to to understand uh, that uh, our researchers have to develop expertise in, in certain areas. So, for example, if, if a policymaker asks a question like, uh, what were the effects of um, the COVID-19 pandemic uh, on uh, families, schools, hospitals, and uh, businesses, we, we are unlikely to find one researcher who can answer all these these, these questions. So, uh, and we, we often tell our um, f policy fellows to think about face-to-face uh, -face meetings like like a puzzle. So each meeting is going to add another piece uh, to the puzzle, but uh, in the end, there might still be some gaps uh, in the overall uh, picture. Yeah, but I guess one of the advantages then of this informal one-to-one -one conversation format is that you can explore ways to answer those very tricky questions, or you could explain why they can't be answered in the way they've been asked. And if you're lucky, then both sides go away with a new understanding, right? Even if it wasn't what they expected. And that's something that's a bit harder to achieve maybe with a more formalized science policy interface with a clear question. And actually, this is what is also, I think, also interesting for the policymakers, you know, because if, if we explain, well, that big question, this is how we start researching on it, or this is our perspective. And then actually, they are always quite happy with the answer, I think. Good. Do you think this format is something that could be replicated elsewhere? In fact, is it being replicated elsewhere? Um, uh, we, we are not the only um, university or university network um, running uh, this type of, of uh, fellowship program. Um, we were inspired by the Center for Science and Policy at Cambridge University, which has been running a, a pretty huge policy fellowship program uh, for many years. And um, uh, recently, the uh, European Commission also initiated uh, a call for applications uh, for pairing schemes in uh, which are related to, to the Science Meets Regions program of, of the European Commission. So uh, there are also similar approaches on the European level. Okay. And what about future improvements? What's on the cards or have you been daydreaming about the ways it could be even better? Actually, for us, it would be really interesting to have the other side, I mean, to make it more bi-directional. So we can choose to, uh, ministries to go and to visit. That would be also really good for us because we can only take what is coming, but we cannot go there and say, oh, I would like to talk to a person in Ministry X or Ministry Y. Uh, that would be also nice if we could expand that model. Yes, I mean, we, we, we can think about uh, uh, organizing kinds of, of study trips to, to ministries in Berlin or, or the commission in Brussels. So that this, this is a good idea, uh, idea indeed. Yes, and because there are some I would like to talk so much, but they're never coming. <laughs> well, like who? 
I mean, I don't want you to name names, but like what areas are you thinking of? Uh, no, I, w I would like to talk to the people who are really doing decisions in energy transition and just to talk to them and to say, look, I mean, here is another opportunity. Have you ever heard about it? Just like this, you know, I mean, not lobbying, but just talking a bit more because there's a lot more out there than politicians have in their mind or, or the, the administration has on their desks just to open their mind for other solutions or that would be great. Hmm. Yeah. Well, on that note, there's something I should have asked you earlier, perhaps, which is, are there any politicians, as in like elected policymakers taking part in this scheme? Or is it by and large civil servants? We, we had um, a few uh, members of uh, regional parliaments. Of course, uh, elected politicians can also apply uh, to the program. Um, but uh, we also have uh, to say that uh, they, they have to visit us twice a year. And uh, elected politicians, uh, they, they do not have that much time. This, this is why we are targeting uh, policy professionals uh, who are uh, usually heads of units in, in ministries or other policymaking institutions. Yeah, I can understand that. I guess it's a, it's a big ask for an elected politician to dedicate that kind of time twice. And yes, and then they would also have to, to submit an application, uh, including uh, a list of topics they're interested in and also a motivation letter and, and a letter of recommendation. Yeah, yeah, it's not going to happen in general. I understand that. So then the last question from me, maybe. We talked a bit ago about how difficult it is to track and take credit for follow-up conversations and the general network building that emerges from a scheme like this. But do you have either any case studies you want to highlight or any kind of quantifiable impact measurements which tell you how the program is doing in general, other than the obviously continuing demand and your own, I guess, warm and fuzzy feelings? Yeah, yes, we, we conduct service on a regular basis. So we ask uh, the participating researchers w whether they uh, um, consider the face-to-face the -face meetings to be rewarding and uh, almost all say uh, that, that they do so. 70% uh, uh, of the researchers um, tell us that they uh, derive ideas for, uh, uh, for research questions by talking to policymakers, uh, which is also um, a great feedback. And um, the policymakers are also quite uh, content with the program uh, with which our service uh, sh show. And you, you asked about case studies. Uh, um, I, I can name um, one, for example, we, we have a policy fellow who's working for the Hessen uh, Ministry of Environment, who's interested in chemical safety. And um, he talked about the issue of communicating complex issues uh, with uh, a scholar uh, from linguistics, Professor Janich at Te Technical University Darmstadt. And uh, they had follow-up meetings, uh, including other researchers and, and colleagues from the Ministry of uh, Environment. And one outcome was that the Ministry of Environment um, updated the, the guidelines on uh, uh, public relations. So, so this, is, this is a small case study. Uh, sometimes also policy fellows uh, will, will tell us uh, how meetings influence some policy making decisions but uh i mean uh this, this has to be off record I, I, let's say we, we better cut this this, this part off so we'll, we'll stick to the case study yeah <laughs> but uh, i i can make uh, for uh, provide another example we we had one a policy fellow during the corona crisis in uh, early 2020 he needed uh, expertise on on the issue of how um, tracking apps work and we were uh, able to arrange uh, two virtual meetings with uh, experts on cybersecurity on the same day and this proved to be very valuable uh, for him. Yeah, I can well imagine. Well, listen, both of you, it's been great to talk to you. As I said earlier in the conversation, we talk a lot on this podcast about 
quite formal and structured science advice systems and the scholarship behind them and so on. So it's really interesting to me to learn about a scheme that is at the other end of the spectrum in a way. Um, so thanks very much to both of you, Tomei Sandewski and Professor Michelle Knott, for this really interesting conversation. Thank you. Thank you very much, Toby. The Science for Policy podcast is created by the Scientific Advice Mechanism to the European Commission. It's produced and presented by Toby Wardman, with additional editing by Nina Skorczak. The Scientific Advice Mechanism provides evidence-based expertise and policy recommendations to inform policymaking in the European Commission. This podcast is funded by the EU via the SAPEA Consortium. Our theme music is composed by Carlo Alfredo Piatti and performed by Elisaveta Shushenko. <laughs>